Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So we are starting here a kind of a new um, book of the Bible. We're looking at 1 Timothy. And you may be wondering, wow, for, for studying 1 Timothy, how come the majority of the passage was read out of Acts chapter 9? Uh, because we're just going to scratch the surface of Timothy today. The more I've kind of prayed about this and contemplated a little bit how we start this um, book, uh, we call it a book, it's a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy, more towards the end of his life. I just really feel that it's important that we understand who these two men are, who the Apostle Paul is and who this young man named Timothy is. Because as we read 1 Timothy, it's always important as we read any letter or any book of the Bible to put it in context. Sometimes that context has something to do with relationships, who these men are, where they come from, what was their life about, how did they get to where they're at. And so as much as we can, we want to make sure that we kind of put that in our minds as we start reading. So I really wanted to take a moment to say, let's look at who Paul is, who Timothy is, and then we're going to take a little along most of the message is going to be looking at how Paul got to this place in his life. What was the, what was the catalyst that got him here, right? He has written much of the New Testament, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And so Let's just dive into 1 Timothy. We're just going to look at the first two verses. We'll scratch the surface here. We're going to go a couple other places. And then we're going to look at kind of how Paul got here, right? So first thing, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Okay, so many of us, when we read one of these, if we're studying our Bible, many of us, when we read those first lines, those first two lines, do we really dive in and study that? Nope, we just read right past it. We just say, yep, he greeted everybody, it's all good, right? We don't need to really, that's nothing deeply theological, we don't need to study that. Um, I, I would ask you just to, to slow down in your reading, to, to be able to just think about what you're reading. It, it builds context, it, 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 there's, some, there's some things in there, some little nuggets that we can kind of take away and say, man, that, that's true, that's right, right? So let's look at this just for a second. Paul. He identifies himself. He's the author. No one, dis- I think very few people dispute. Every- in today's culture, um, with some of our, our more progressive theologians that are around today, they question every book of the Bible anymore. But for, for 2,000 years, this has stood as, as definitely being something that Paul wrote. Obviously, he's addressing himself here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, now, unless, unless you really have thought through that, I thought the apostles were only the 12 that were with Jesus. Nobody else has the term apostle in their name. They're disciples. They're ministers of the gospel, but they're not apostles. The apostles, the apostolic age, were the men that were with Jesus. First the 12, Judas obviously is commits suicide. Matthias comes in, it's the 12. But yet here, Paul addresses himself or addresses, identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know that I can have a full answer for you in this, but I'll tell you what, what, what I think many people believe and, and what I think would stand to the test of, of truth. Saul, you're going to see here in a little bit. Now, he, we're, we're gonna, for, for his namesake, he's Saul in Scripture early on. But he, at some point, he becomes Paul. His name switches to Paul, all right? 
So for the point of our conversation today, you're going to hear me calling Paul the whole time, just to make it clear. But it's the same. So if you're reading in Scripture, unless you're in the Old Testament, that could be King Saul. That's a completely different Saul. But in the New Testament here, in, this, in the book of Acts, he's identified as Saul until they change his name. So here, he's identifying himself as an apostle of Christ. Now, the reason I believe that, that that's true and, and is that later we're going to look at his conversion, his transformation when he becomes a Christian. And right after that happens, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a beautiful thing that we see in Acts chapter 9. After that happens, historically, we don't know all the details, he goes into Arabia for a few years, two, three years. We don't have any documentation that I'm aware of in Scripture about what, what he's doing there, why he's there. Many people, many scholars believe that somehow, in some way, Jesus was discipling him in Arabia. And you say, well, Jesus had been dead and was resurrected. Yep, but Jesus came back. Maybe it was through the Spirit of God. Maybe it was through just the Holy Spirit working in him. Something. Now, why, why would we think that? Because when Paul gets back on the scene, he writes much of the New Testament and doctrinal, like the book of Romans is a foundational book of the Bible. It lays out much of the Christian doctrine. I mean, it's just incredible, right? Not to mention the church structure, which we're going to see here in 1 Timothy later on, right, in other places. Where did he get all that? Where did all that come from, right? Well, did he just make it up? I don't think so, right? This is something that we, we said all Scripture is God-breathed. We said that a few weeks ago, Right? So obviously, and so while we don't know, he identifies because Jesus appears to him. Like Jesus comes to him and talks to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And so he is like this 13th apostle. He, he kind of was with Jesus in a real intimate sort of way. And so, once again, we, sometimes we read over those things. And what that means is there's something significant about this man that's going to be writing this letter to Timothy. Right? And, and why is he writing this letter? We're going to dig into that in the next few weeks, right? What's his point? But now notice something else here in the text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God. I mean, God is working here and doing something. God is commanding. He's, he's, he has a purpose. He's sovereign over this. He's saying, I'm going to do something with this man. Was Paul moving along one day, and we're going to see who, who Paul was, and just say, boy, I, I want to serve Jesus and give my life away for him. No, nope, that's not where he was at at all, and we'll see that. God has commanded it. But notice the other thing here. He says, by command of God, our Savior. So he's saying, God is our Savior. Now notice in the next part of it, he says, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Well, we would say, well, Jesus is our Savior. Well, I think what... what Paul is rightly theologically thinking through here is, is that God is the one that saves us. God is the one that initiates becoming a man and sends us. It's the love of God, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? So whoever believes in him will not perish. God is the one doing the saving. Jesus is the vehicle or the person who comes through and to do the will of God to save us. So what do we see here? That's why it goes on there. It says, Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the fact that he was God, that he was sinless, that he was you know, crucified, dead, and was buried, and was resurrected, and it's coming again. That's our hope. And so Paul is just rightly dividing these two things. It's, it's part of the Trinity here. It's part of the, the Godhead, right? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, even here in his first line, he's showing that he understands there's a division in the Godhead between the Father, who is 
has the will and choosing to save and the, the person who he's going to become and to do the saving, which is where our hope is at. All right, so who was Paul? Saul. Well, we know a few things. We're going to read some scripture here in a minute, but he was born in a town of called Tar- or Tarsus. We think he was probably born somewhere around 5 AD. We're not 100% sure. Um, he was very similar in age to Jesus. In fact, when he really starts his ministry, when he first becomes a Christian, he's about 30 years old, so he's a fairly young man. He was a Jew. He was a, um, obviously a Jewish heritage, but he was also living in an area where it was Greek culture, and so he was Greek. He had Greek citizenship which was very unique for a Jew to have Greek citizenship. And and you see that come to play later in the book of Acts when he is being persecuted and arrested, and he can appeal to the powers that be, the government, because he is a Greek citizen. He's a Roman citizen. And so that makes a huge difference. He was educated. We're going to see that. He wrote at least, we believe, 13 books of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now think about that. 13 books of the 27 books, almost half of the New Testament, at least in books or letters are by Paul. First, second, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Corinthians, right? Philemon, um, just goes on and on, you know? Uh, Galatians, it's just, and, and Romans, obviously, as we said, just a, just a powerful theological book. And why would God choose him? Well, maybe, and, and these are just the things that I would encourage you to just really just ponder. You know, God comes and he, he appears, the angels appear to some shepherds one night at his birth. Common people, just, you know, shepherds in the, in the fields. When he comes, he comes first to John the Baptist, and then he comes to some fishermen. Once again, not, not anybody of, of great um, political stature, not anybody of great uh, educational, academic stature, um, he, he walks with fishermen and a tax collector, and, and I'm not saying these guys weren't smart. I'm just saying they weren't of the, the religious authority, the schooled individuals. But if God is going to start his church, he needs someone that is capable of, of writing a book of Romans. And you say, well, God wrote it, absolutely. But Paul is going to be doing three, at least three missionary trips that we know of in his life to go into modern-day Turkey and all the way up to Rome and, and, and um, Macedonia and all these places and Athens and Greece. And, and he's going to be preaching the gospel and teaching Greek people for the gospel to be put forth in the world. He's going to be reaching Greek people as well as Jews. And so he selects this one man to be able to do this. And so we're going to see this. But who was this man? Well, the first thing that we see is, and we're going to hear from Paul directly here in a minute, but Paul was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. Paul was trying to stamp out Christianity in Jerusalem. That's where he started. He was a zealot for it. He wanted to to crush it. He was a Pharisee. He was part of the religious establishment. He was wanting to just make sure that this heresy, this thing called, you'll see it in a minute, the way, right? Jesus says that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The early Christian movement was called the way. It wasn't, they weren't called Christians, not until Antioch. It was the way. And so we're going to hear here multiple times, it says his goal was to stamp out the way, to put them to death, to arrest them, right? And so he started out as a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. Let's hear from Paul in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Now, here in Acts, that Luke has written and kind of 
meticulous recorded the events of the early church and it started up. Um, here we get to Acts 22 and it's towards the, more the, towards the end more so of Paul's life, getting towards the final parts of his, his life and mission. And he's explaining to some folks here who he is. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear, witness, bear me witness. So he's saying, look, I've been educated under this guy called Gamaliel. I've, I've sat and I've learned. I'm, I'm, I'm educated, highly educated in these things, in, in the truths of, of Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And, and I, I've been given this authority now to go and to, to bind and arrest all of these people that are of the way of the Christian belief. And we're going to purge the synagogues of these people because they're coming in, they're corrupting it. And we're going to put it down. We're going to put this movement down. And so that's what he begins to do. We see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, he's having a conversation here. Now, this is when we believe Paul was in, in Roman prison, and he was writing uh, back to the church at Philippi, and, and he's, they're talking really about having confidence in the flesh, and really no one should have confidence in the flesh. But Paul makes this statement. It says some things about him. He says, if anybody has confidence in the flesh or any reason to have confidence in the flesh, it's me, because I'm that wonderful. That's what he kind of tells us. He says in verse uh, 5 of, of Chapter 3 of Philippians. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. <laughs> I think that guy's got a little ego going on, right? Blameless under the law. Like, I'm a zealot. I, I persecute the church. He had reason to boast in his position as a Pharisee. That's what he's telling them, Right? He's being transparent here with the church. He's saying, this is who I was, right? Now, what happens to him? How do we see this, this? Do we see that he really did do this? So I just want to take you one place in Scripture. We're going to look at Acts chapter 7, but to kind of back up in Acts chapter 6, tell you what's going on here. Um, Acts chapter 6, we see that there's some widows that are not being treated fairly. There's some Hebrew widows, and there's some what we call Hellenistic widows. These were people that were Jewish, but in, in their culture, they were more Greek, and they were called Hellenists, and they, they were being some favoritism to the, to the Hebrew ladies, right? And so um, the apostles said, look, it is not right for us to not teach and take time to make sure all these women are getting treated and fed properly and, and cared for, and so we're going to appoint seven men to do this. And they look for very, you know, men of great integrity, and they appoint seven men, and Stephen is kind of given the head to be able to do this. And so they begin to do this, and, and what you see in Acts chapter 6, some great things are beginning to happen, and God is moving through Stephen and through these men and, and, and doing some mighty things. And the Jewish establishment is not happy with that. And once again, you're seeing Paul is going to be present here. And we don't know all the ways that Paul is present here, but they want to squash this. And so they arrest, basically, Stephen. They bring him before the, the council. And, and I would just encourage you to go read Acts chapter 7. Stephen has this incredible speech. It's not really a sermon, it's a speech, where he tells them the history of the Jewish, because they're thinking he doesn't understand who the Jews are, that he's moved away from the Jewish heritage, and he is not. He lays out who 
all the way from the, 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 um, the exile of, of you know, Hebrews out of Egypt and, and Abraham. And he walks through the whole thing just beautifully. It's just so poignant. And he gets to this place where he says, and Jesus is what God is doing and you've killed him. Like he lays this thing out and says, I understand who God is. I understand what we believe. And here it is. Da, 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 da. And it's so wonderful. And by the way, you've just killed the guy. How do you think they took that? Not well. Not well. So what do we see? I'm just going to read you just a part of it. In Acts chapter 7, verses 57 and 58, it says, But they cried out with a loud voice. Now, these are the people that were there, right? And stopped their ears, meaning they stopped listening, and rushed him, rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. He's overseeing it, approving it. We don't, we don't know. I can't give any more details than that. Did he command them to do it? We don't know. But he clearly had authority there as a Pharisee, as a young Pharisee, and, and wanted this stamped out and was approving of this action on the part of these people. So we see here that Paul was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. And so I say that because as we dive into 1 Timothy, and as we look here in a little bit about his transformation, I want you to feel the weight of who he was and what obviously God is doing, has done in his life, and has transformed him to be this man now that's going to give his life away and write a much of the New Testament, right? It's so important that we rightly see him in Scripture and where he came from, the magnitude of it. All right. Second verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Now he's addressing who the letter is to. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Just two quick things. One, this letter is to an individual. But we think that obviously Paul knew that these letters would be passed around. right? So while he's addressing it to Timothy... He also is obviously above, he's, he's given his credentials, you know, uh, apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Because what I think Paul realizes, I'm writing it to Timothy, but I'm going to need to put my stamp on it because it's going to go around and they need to know who I am and that I have authority to be saying the things I am saying. So while it's addressed to an individual, we believe that it absolutely was meant for the entire church. Okay? And obviously we have it here today, and so I think that also bodes to that as well. The second thing I would say is my true child in the faith. What, what, what Timothy, you'll see here in a minute, we're going to read some text of what Paul talks about Timothy. This relationship was one almost of parent to child. He was not his father. He was not his biological father, but he felt like he was his spiritual father. And I can clearly see that this relationship was very intimate. They spent probably from about 50 A.D., when, when this kind of starts, when he comes along and, and picks up Timothy, to about 17 years that they've walked together. Many of the letters of the New Testament, I think seven of the new letters, or the letters of the New Testament by Paul address Timothy, talk about Timothy. You see where Timothy's been sent places. He's longing for Timothy. We believe that Timothy was in Rome with him when he was in prison and ministering to him. It talks about all of that. So this relationship is quite unique that Paul has with this young man. So who was this man, Timothy? We see once again, though, here at the end of verse one or verse 2, it says, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Once again, we see that Paul is dividing out the Godhead. He understands that, that there's God the Father, and then there's God the Son, or Christ our Lord. 
So once again, we see that he's, even theologically in his address here, he's laying out these principles for people to understand that there are two things, there are two individuals in the Godhead, unique there. So who was Timothy? Well, let's just look what Paul says about him. That's the best way to do it. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I want to set this up. So now um, we're kind of going to jump around just a little bit. Paul now is a believer. We're going to see how he got to being a believer here in a minute. But Paul's a believer here in Acts chapter 16, and, and he's been converted. God has transformed him. And he's, now he sets out of a place called Antioch, which is kind of north of Jerusalem, up the coast, um, to the Mediterranean. And he, he goes on a missionary journey, and he goes into modern-day Turkey, he sails, and he goes to these little towns, and he comes back. And he meets before the Jewish council, and then uh, he, he, he went the first time, he went with a guy named Barnabas and John Mark. That's a whole other story. And then the second time he leaves, he takes a guy named Silas, and they go on their second missionary journey. Now, in the first missionary journey, they go up through modern Turkey, and there's three little towns that kind of are clustered together. It's Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. And there's these little towns, and he goes through them on his first missionary journey, and on his way back, he goes to them again. And now, Timothy lives in Lystra, okay? On the second missionary journey, on the way up, he stops there, and he picks Timothy up. Now, we don't know if he met him in the first missionary journey. We don't know if he was aware of him or if he learns of him the first time. I would lean to say that he probably was aware of him, maybe knew him and talked to him, um, and, you know, and maybe helped disciple him a little bit when they were there. So here we pick it up in Acts 16, 1 and 2. So Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there. A disciple meaning a follower of Jesus. Someone was following in the, in the, the, the way, right, of Christ. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, right? So she was a Jew, but she'd been converted. She's a believer. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So here Paul gets to this town again, and he, he comes to this young man. We don't know how old Timothy is. We believe he's younger, obviously, than Paul. Paul's around 30 years old or 34 years old. So maybe he's in his late teens, early 20s. We don't know exactly. There's speculation out there. And he's a believer, and he's a disciple. And, and even though he has a, a Jewish mother, she's a believer. The father is Greek, but he has great reputation among these people in these towns. And so Paul is going <clears> to <throat> pick him up and take him with him. And we see this in verse 3 and 4. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, I could go into a lot of things there. Obviously, they circumcise him because the people that they're going, he's Greek, and the people they're going to be seeing in these synagogues are Jews, and they want, him to, they want him to feel and look Jewish, right? It wasn't a necessity for faith purposes. It was more one out of making sure that there was no obstacles in him going along. But what I want you to see here, and what I think is so important, is as they went on their way through the cities, the whole point was, is Paul was, why was Paul doing these missionary journeys? He was setting up churches. He was sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel. But one of his primary missions was to set a church up, find believers, have God work in, in a group of people, cause them to become believers, and then set up a church so that he could move on. And then he could go back and it could encourage those churches. And so it says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, here it is, the observance and, and the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The apostles 
and the elders in Jerusalem of the Christian church were kind of laying out the foundation of what it looked like to manage a church, how a healthy church would function, right? You say, well, who, who made them, you know, king? God did. That's, that he's asked them to do this. He's given them a direction to do something and to set up a church. And so when we look at Scripture, and this is what we're going to do when we look through 1 Timothy, even in our worship today, even in all the things we do, we're looking to Scripture and saying, how does God want his church to function? Well, teaching of the word, absolutely. Worship, absolutely. We baptize people, absolutely. Where do we get all that? From the scriptures. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Where do we get that? From the scriptures, right? Uh, where do we get that? And we're going to look at this in First Timothy. Where do we get the structure of, of pastors and elders and deacons and, and, and the role of men and women? From scripture, right? And so this is what Paul is saying. He says, we're going to go, Timothy, and we're going to go all these cities and all these towns, and we're going to begin to set it up based on what the apostles and the elders of the church have given to us to do. This wasn't Paul saying, I'm going to make it up as I go. This is the direction that God is leading in his organization and setup of the church. So he wants to purge now, not just Jerusalem, right? He wants to purge Jerusalem of all these people as a Pharisee now, before he becomes a believer. And now we're going to pick it up. We're going to move to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to see Paul's conversion. But how did he get here in this conversion? So I want to kind of set this up a little bit. Paul is on, he's, he's purging the way, the Christian movement, out of the synagogues in Jerusalem. He must have been fairly successful because now he's decided that he can go on to a place called Damascus and do more of this. There's, there's things that are happening there, and I need to go, and I need to, to purge out what he would think is, is heresy teaching and false teaching, and he wants to go and, and clean house. So here's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats under murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that he found that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul was on a mission to crush the movement of the way. And so he goes to the high priest and says, look, give me some letters so when I get to the synagogues there in Damascus, that I have authority to arrest these people in their synagogues that are preaching or that are teaching and believing in the way, believing in Jesus, that he's the son of God. And so that's what we see. So now we're going to see that God has had enough. And, and what I want you to kind of, as I walk through this with Paul, and what God is, how he's transforming Paul. Today, if you're a Christian, I'm hoping that you'll see in your own life, in your own encounters with God and how you've gotten to where you're at, you'll see the things that Paul is going through. If you don't see any of them, you need to come talk to me. Because I'm not sure maybe you've been born again. Because these things are foundational, I think, in what it looks like as we are transformed into the image of Christ, right? And so, now not everything is going to fit exactly. Obviously, this is a, an incredible moment. There's just some supernatural things. I mean, Jesus appears to him, talks to him in an audible voice. Uh, even the, the guards around him or the people around him hear it. Okay, that's probably not happening in your experience to come to know Christ. It didn't happen that way with me, right? Even though I feel the Holy Spirit speaking in ways, I, I didn't hear God, Jesus speaking to me audibly. But, but the principles are here. 
So I'm going to list several things as we walk through this transformation. Here's the first one. Paul was confronted by Jesus. Now think about this for a second. When we're born, what do we, what do we say? We are born into sin. We are born in an, an antagonistic relationship with God. Romans 3, no one seeks after God. No, not one. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, we are dead in our sin and our trespasses, right? And so when you see about who Paul is here, his first 30 years, he's, he's spiritually dead. He doesn't see this. Now think about this. Here's a highly educated guy who has studied the Old Testament, right? We would call it the, the Septuagint, right? The Old Testament in, in, uh, in Greek. He studied it. He knows it. He's a, he's a scholar of the law. All the prophecy that points to the Messiah is right before him, right? He's knowledgeable, and yet Jesus comes, and he doesn't see it. Why doesn't he see it? Why doesn't anybody see it? Because they're spiritually dead. They're blind. Scripture says the God of this world has blinded us to the light of the gospel. We can't see it. I, I've learned over the last 15 years as pastoring that that truth is so profoundly true. I have been here, and, and I've, you know, last four or five years, um, you know, Brian and I preach every week. We teach, and we do all sorts of things. And I will sit down with someone that has sat under our preaching for five years, let's say. And I'll say, um, so you're going to go to heaven when you die? Yeah. Why? I've been good. I'll talk to him for 15 minutes. Jesus is never mentioned. I'm about ready to quit my job at that moment. I mean, okay, I've been, I've been doing, I mean, working as hard as I can to preach the gospel, get it clear, make it clear. I don't want to, I don't want to, sometimes I'm a little harsh maybe I feel sometimes. And, and all of a sudden, I'm like, have you not heard anything we've said? And, and several years ago, I had just had to come to this place and be okay with it. I'm not okay in the sense of, I'm just like, God, I can't, I can't do anything. I can only preach and teach. You have to open their eyes. You have to take the scales off their eyes. I can't do it. And I can't get upset when they're not where I want them to be. That's God's work. My responsibility, your responsibility is to share the gospel and let God do what only he can do, right? And, and so th this is this place here. So here Paul is in the first 30 years of his life. He's blinded by the gospel or blinded by the God of this world. He doesn't see the truth of the light of the gospel. Christ has come into the world. Jesus came into the world. He's died, resurrected. Paul still doesn't see it. He is blind. He's blind. He just can't see it. And he's persecuting. He has hatred in his heart towards this movement. Because if you're either for Christ or you're against him, you're on the wide road of the narrow road. There's, there's not a multiple bunch of options here. It's two, right? And so that's where Paul's at. And when we're, we're all in that state, and what's the first thing in anybody's transformation that happens. Gener they're confronted with Jesus. That's the question. Jesus confronts us in some way, and in, in, in the Holy Spirit brings him to our knowledge, to the gospel that's preached to us. We hear it. We read it in Scripture. We hear it on the radio program. Somehow, this person of the Godhead named Jesus confronts us and says, basically, who do you think I am? Right? In the Gospels, what does Jesus ask his followers? Who do people say that I am? 
Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, right? What's Peter's answer? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Peter, my Father in heaven revealed that to you. Because, see, Peter, you're blind unless God does that. You can't see it. That's the question for all of us today. Jesus confronts us at some point in our life. We can either reject that or we can receive that. We can either say, yes, I see it, and now we're going to talk about what happens there, or we can reject that. We see many in the Old Testament or in the New Testament here reject that claim. The Pharisees that I believe knew the truth, and they still put him to death. That's how deeply rooted, we've said over the last several weeks, how deeply rooted denying the truth is in humanity. That we can look at the truth and still deny it, right? We can look at it and still deny it. So here, here what do we see here? How does Jesus confront him now? Here, let's look at Acts chapter 9, verse 3 through 5. Now, as he went on his way, he's heading towards Damascus. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I want you to just think about this for a second. You've saw Paul's arrogance in his, like, blameless under the law. He's some 30-some-year-old guy. He's got the world by the tail. He's a Pharisee. He's, you know. And all of a sudden, he, and he's on this mission, this zealous mission to squash out this thing that he thinks is false teaching. He's going to protect the Jewish faith and, and the, 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 the whole religion. And all of a sudden, he's on the way, and he gets confronted by Jesus. I don't know about you, but man, I remember a day I was confronted the first time by Christ. He said, not like that, fortunately. But I became aware that Jesus claimed something about himself. And I had to, I had to, I had to wrestle with that. I, Friday, I did a, a funeral um, for a 90-year-old relative and um, there was a handful of people there, maybe 15, 20 people. And that's what I told them. I said, look, we talked about truth, and I preached about truth a little bit. And I said, the question this morning is, who do you think Jesus is? Either he is a liar because he said he was the son of God. Or he was delusional because he thought he was the son of God, and he really was. He was just crazy. Or he was the son of God. No one really would dispute that he lived and was a historical figure and they claimed to be Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. And so the question for all of us is, who do you say that he is? It's, it's always coming back to that. And, and the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John, when, when Lazarus is put to death, and, or he dies, I should say, and, and he, Jesus comes and he's late and Lazarus is dead and he comes to Mary or Martha and, and Martha said, Lord, if you've been here, and he says, you know, you could have saved him. And he says, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection. And and those, though he dies, he will live, and this and this. He says, but do you believe this? It always comes back to, we're confronted by that truth. Do you believe this? Because what you answer to that question will dramatically determine how you live out your life and the decisions that you will make. Now, you can deny it, and, and some people want to have one foot in and say, well, I, I, I kind of believe that, but I still want to live my life over here. I, I don't think that is what Jesus is talking about. I clearly don't see anywhere in Scripture that that life is God-honoring, and I would argue that maybe not even 
a Christian life. Now, we're not saved by works. Don't hear that. I'm saying, but if, it, if we've not been transformed, then you have to wonder, have I really been born again? And I look at that based on how I live my life. That's the indicator. Right? All right. What's the second thing we see here in the text? Paul was humbled by God. Not only was he confronted, because I will tell you that if you come to Christ, or if, you, if you're confronted by Christ, at some point, the first thing that you can realize, if, if, it's, if it's something that's really penetrating your heart, if you're really changing, if you're really being brought into a relationship with Christ, you will be humbled. If you are not humbled, then I'm wondering if you're really being confronted by Christ in a way that is meaningful in, in life transformation. I mean, because when we come and we see that who Jesus is for the very first time and we see that he is God in the flesh and that he has lived a sinless life and he has died for us in a brutal death and, and was ridiculed and mocked and spit on and then dies and gives his life up for us and then raises from the dead and saves us even though we've done nothing to deserve it, even though we live most of our life in, in really rejection of him and yet he loves us and he saves us. If we're not humbled by that, and I don't think we're there. Because once we're confronted, the next thing is humility. Let's look at this in the passage here, 6 through 9. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Right? Here's this guy, all high and mighty, you know, and God is now humbling him. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voices and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here was this guy just moments earlier, zealous to kill the people from the way. Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless under the law, had the world by the tail. And Jesus confronts him and humbles him and blinds him. How do you think it would have been, how do you think, what, what do you think Paul was dealing with at that moment? I mean, think about all the things that could be going through Paul's head. We don't know. Oh my gosh, this is real. I've had people arrested and killed. I've missed it. I didn't see any of it. I didn't see all those prophetic things. How could I have missed that? You're talking about humbling. You're talking about realizing that you're not all that. And I'll tell you, that, that spirit is in the culture today. We think we're all that. Academia thinks we're all that. You name it, we all have it, right? That's why we can deny the truth, because we think we're all that. That the same thing is present. This, 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 this template here is, is playing it out over and over and over in our lives. But he blinds him. Can you imagine Paul, this strong young man, now having to be led by his friends because he can't see? Realizing that, that God spoke to him and rebuked him. I don't think I would eat or drink for a while either. It goes on in verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So it's a believer named Ananias in Damascus where they were going. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands uh, come and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. So basically, God in a vision comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I'm gonna this this other man's having a vision, and I'm gonna lead him to you, and I want you to be able to restore his sight. Now, Ananias, how does he respond? Verse 13 and 14. But I, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Basically, Ananias is saying, Lord, I've heard of this guy. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want this guy to regain his sight. Leave him, leave him alone. Let, put him to death. I, Ananias, I'm sure, has not, not, nothing to want to do with this gentleman. But we're going to see here is that God is going to tell Ananias that I have a purpose here. So what's the next thing I think that we see in Paul and I think in our own Christian walk? Once we're confronted with Jesus and once we're humbled by God, Paul was commissioned by God. As believers, that's the next thing that happens. We're confronted by Christ, right? We're humbled by Christ. And now he says, I want you to do this for me. I'm the authority. Now I want you to give me your life and do this for me. I'm commissioning you to go. We'll see that later. So Paul was commissioned by God. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. Now he's, he's telling Ananias, look, I want you to do this, Ananias. Don't, don't give me any flack. Just do this. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God is saying, look, I'm choosing this man for my purposes. Paul, it doesn't, anywhere in the text here, it seems nowhere that Paul can say no. God is saying, this, is, this whole thing is about me, bringing glory to myself. I'm going to set up my church, and I'm going to use you, Paul. I'm going to show you who you really are. I'm going to, I'm going to cause you to be born again. I'm going to give you my spirit. You're going to see that here in a minute. And I'm commissioning you. You know, we... Several, almost a year ago now, um, we had Mr. and Mrs. Smith, our family that is overseas, that, that we help sponsor and, and to do mission work, take the gospel around the world. Um, we had a commissioning service. I don't know, it was an hour and a half, two-hour service. We brought them, we laid hands on them, we commissioned them for this work. And, and we sent them. And, and really, that's true. Every, every Sunday, we, we do this. Every time we gather in the corporate gathering on Sunday and we, we teach the word and we worship together, ultimately what we're doing is we're sending all of ourselves out into the world to be missionaries, to your homes, to your workplaces, to, to wherever it is that you go. As you go, make disciples. We're going to see that. And we're sending. We're being commissioned all the time from Scripture to go. We do not have a holy huddle. We're to go. Paul here is being commissioned by God for this very purpose. And I would say that that is true today. God is using his church for his purposes. When I say his church, his people for his purposes. To bring himself glory. But you know, when he commissions us, what does he do? It's the next thing. Paul was equipped by God. So he commissions us and sends us, but he doesn't send us empty-handed. He sends us equipped. We're equipped. What does he equip us with? Because so many, so many people today in, in the Christian faith will all say, you know, how, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you, how you no, I just, don't feel, I, I just don't feel qualified. I don't do this. I don't do that. And I want to say, you know, you're equipped. 
well, no, I just, I'm not really, I don't. Let's, let's see what, what he says here. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. So he, now he's found this house on, on Straight Street, house of Judas. And laying his hands on him, on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came was sent to me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He just got equipped. The Holy Spirit just equipped him. See, yeah, but he didn't have, you know, this training, that training. No, the Holy Spirit equips us. Now, obviously, we have a responsibility to learn and to, to, to study Scripture and hide God's Word in our heart. And to, but, but, you know, there's, but we're equipped. We, we, God says, look, I'll go with you. I'll be in you. Here, here's the thing. We have a responsibility. When we read Scripture... If we're not equipped with the Holy Spirit, we don't truly understand Scripture because Scripture is alive and active, right? And the Holy Spirit reveals Scripture to us. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we can read it like a newspaper. It's, it's letters on a page. It's words on a page. We don't, it's, it's not penetrating our heart It's because our, our eyes are, are closed. We don't see the truth of the gospel. God has equipped him to do the work as a hand. And, and think about what is coming for Paul now. These missionary journeys and all these things, he's going to give his life away. And I would argue that the, the Holy, the God has given us the Holy Spirit as believers. When we come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit is, dwells in us. It's given to us as a seal of our salvation. He's equipped you. The, the problem is, is, is that then we, we want to take the easy way out and say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't feel equipped. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel or not. You're equipped. Now, you, need, you have responsibility to study and to do some work. But, but the Holy Spirit will work. He'll be there. It's a partnership. It's a part, I, I, you know, I, I've been talking about this so much. I, I probably said this. If I said this, please forgive me. My, my, my mind is not what it used to be. Or it never was, I guess, actually. So I'm reading a book by Jerry Bridges. And I just got to the preface. And Jerry Bridges talks about how our, our relationship with God is a partnership. And he said it's a little bit like a farmer. A farmer wants to grow corn. Can a farmer sit on his porch and watch the corn grow and do nothing? He hasn't even, he hasn't even tilled the field yet. So what does the farmer have to do? The farmer goes out and he, he plows up the field. He disks the field down. He runs his planter. He plants the corn. He buys the seed. He plants it. He fertilizes the corn. He goes back and he sits on his porch. Now, can the, can the farmer make the corn grow? No. He can't. What happens? It needs to rain. It needs sunshine. And the miracle to me is that little thing in the dirt has to sprout and grow up to a huge cornstalk. That's just so amazing to me. I'm so easily amused. A little thing planted in dirt brings a stalk this big with two or three ears on it. That's just a miracle to me. So easily mystified. But see, the farmer can't just make it grow. He needs God. However... If the farmer doesn't plant the field, will there be corn that grows? No. It's a partnership. We have a responsibility. And I love it how Jerry Bridges puts it. He sums it up. He says, God will do what only he can do, but he will not do what you must do. See, he's saying to the farmer, if you don't plant it, I'm not planting it. I will make it grow if you get out there and do it, but I will not do what you must do. I was so convicted because I pray that God will help me get up early and read the Bible. 
because I'm not very good at that. And I felt God saying, Raleigh, I've given you the scripture. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I am not going to get up for you. You have to do that. I mean, that's really, that's where it's at, right? We want to say, well, I want to pray that God will help me do this. No, he's saying, just do it. Like, I've done everything else. I've died. I've been risen from the dead. I've lived sinlessly. I've given you the scriptures. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I can't get you out of bed. That's your responsibility, Raleigh. That's your responsibility to study. It's your responsibility in church to be in church on Sunday and be in the fellowship. It's, it's, I'm not going to do what you must do. I was so convinced, and I just got to the preface. I didn't even got to chapter one yet. So we're equipped. All right, what's the next thing we see? Paul was transformed by God. Now, I wanna, I'm going to be real clear on this one. He was transformed by God. Well, actually, he was, I take that back. That's, that was my original thought, but God was, gave, gave him spiritual sight is the point, I think, on your sheet. God gave him spiritual sight. Now, I want to be clear. The text says he regained his sight. It doesn't say spiritual sight. It just says sight. He got his, his sight back. He could see again. But I think that the, the thrust of this that I'd like to, to argue is, is that, yes, that's true, but Paul also got spiritual sight back at that moment. He was able to see a world completely different than he was before he was blinded, right? Before he was blinded. So let's pick that up. It's, it's in Acts chapter nine, chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes, and he regained his sight. Okay, see the, see the imagery there again of the scales? God, is blind, or the God of this world has blinded us to the light of the gospel. What did he just say? Scales fell off his eyes, and now he can see. Right? He can't see. John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, what is, what is Nicodemus says, Lord, I want to be born again. What is, I, I, need to, I need to, how do I do? How do I get born again? And, and what does Jesus say? You, you must be born again, and you can't see the kingdom unless you are, Nicodemus. You're blind. You can't see it. And Nicodemus, I think, is waiting for like, well, how do I do that? And Jesus, oh, uh, the wind blows where it goes and what it does, and you really don't have any control over that. Right? Now, I believe later, I believe that Nicodemus became a believer. So I believe here when Paul is being transformed, his heart is being changed. He's been given the Holy Spirit. His vision has changed. I'll tell you what, if you, become, if you have been born again as a believer, you see different things in the world. Your vision is different. The things that you see, the, the things that you can tolerate, and, and by God's grace, it starts here and he gives us more sight as we go and it gets harder sometimes because we almost see more than we want to see. And, and we almost, I get to a place where like, oh my gosh, just put me in a room and shut the doors because I, I can't take anymore, Lord. Don't show me anymore, right? And you say, well, why is it progressive like that? Well, you're five-year-old or 10-year-old. Do you want them to know and see everything that you know? Oh my gosh, no. You want to wait and give it to them gradually so that they can, you know, acclimate to this thing called life and, and sexuality and decisions and maturity and all of these things. And God is no different. He is patient with us, and he, he gives us a little bit at a time so that we can grow and be sanctified by it. But the first step is that we have to be transformed, and we have to be able to see. So, if this has been his transformation, now what is Paul's responsibility? God has done what only God can do. Now it comes to Paul. What's the last point I want to make? 
Paul responded to God. He responded. So what did he do? How did he respond? Then he, he rose. That could be for me. I got to get up in the morning, right? He rose early. Then he rose and was baptized. He responded. He said, I want to identify with Jesus. I'm going to get baptized. Now, I'll try not to be too harsh on anybody. Over the years of pastoring, I've crossed a lot of people that say they, they love Jesus, they've, they've given their life to Christ, but they've not been baptized by immersion. We, we believe best by immersion. I've heard people say, well, my hair, my, my hair looks funny. I don't want to get it in front of people and have wet hair because I have a funky head and when all the hair sticks to my... I've heard people say, well, I just I get nervous. I just, I just don't want to do that. Now, let's just think about this for a second. God has made you, has become a man for you, has lived a sinless life, dies for you, is ridiculed, mocked, spit on, put to death, raises from the dead, gives you his spirit to equip you, and you get to a place where he's done all that only he can do, and when it comes now to what you must do, you say no. Because you're afraid you're going to look funny. How will we ever disciple the world if we can't do that? How will we ever stand in the storm of people like Paul when he was a Pharisee if we can't do that? If we won't identify with Christ publicly and worry about, not worry about what we look like. or Look, we make it as simple as possible. We don't ask you to speak in there except for saying yes. That's the only thing we ask. Now we ask you to do a video. But, but if you've really given, if your life has been transformed, if you've been confronted by Jesus, if you've been humbled by Christ, if you've been equipped by, by God, surely you should tell us in a few minutes that that's happened to you. He said, well, I'm embarrassed. Well, you shouldn't be. You know, we celebrate communion here the Lord's Supper. And many churches, see, in the early church, I believe it's very doctrinally sound here to say, in the early church, when you became a Christian, you got baptized. That was your, that was like entrance into the church. That was, you did it, you said, yes, I want to identify with Jesus, I want to identify with these people, this is, uh, this is who I am, this is my family, I want this. As many as gave in their life to Christ, they were baptized that day, we hear, right? And yet, in our church today, when we offer communion, I know that there are people taking communion that have not been baptized. Now, we don't withhold it because we want to be gracious. But I'm asking you, like, you want to come to the, the table and you want to partake of all that God has given you. And yet you won't get baptized. I just find that really hard to understand. And I have good friends that, that have struggled with it to be baptized. But folks, this is not a game. We are worshiping the God of the universe who has sent his son to die for us. And if we have responded and been confronted with Christ and we believe, surely we should want to do what he wants us to do, which is such a simple thing.
rose and he was baptized. Now, is there more for us to do after that? Oh my gosh, that's just the beginning. But we got to start with the simple, obedient thing. So my question for you as we close today is, where is your relationship with Christ? Right, as we're going to look at this relationship between Paul and Timothy as we unpack this, this letter today, as we kind of start this and we see where Paul came from and, and where, where Paul is now at the end and, and he's pouring his life out, he's giving his life away. The question is, where is your life? I want you to reflect on that for a moment. So let me ask you this. Are you still, and, and look, if you are, praise God, you're here, here in the gospel. We love you. But are you still back at Saul? Your heart is hard. You don't believe. You, you'd just as soon persecute the church if you could, but you're here because somehow something drew you here, a friend drug you here, a parent drug you here, and all of a sudden, now what? You've been confronted with Jesus. You've been confronted with the truth of the gospel. As I read in Psalm 1, only one way, it's through Christ. He died for you. You have to decide whether that's what, what Paul's being confronted with here. Jesus says, who are you persecuting? You're persecuting me. Jesus says, Paul, you're persecuting me, and, I, I, and why are you doing this? You need to stop doing this. Where are you? Are you, are you someone that's been confronted by Jesus? You've been transformed. In fact, you've even been equipped. The Holy Spirit, you're saved, you're a believer, but yet you still have not been baptized. I would ask why. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been baptized, and now you're like, what's next in my, like, okay, I can quit now. Like, I got this far. I got one foot in just in case. You know, but I want to live my life. I'm one foot in. I got baptized. I'm good. But I don't really want to be changed any more than that because that's affecting my life. Okay? That's not the spirit of what I think the Lord wants. You know, earlier here in the, the thing, it says that um, in Matthew or Acts chapter 15 and 16, it says, you know, I will, I will show him, uh, Jesus says, I will show how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, what we don't know there, I don't want to add to this, as Brian said the other day, we don't want to isolate Jesus. We don't want to add things into Scripture. But the question there is, is what, is what is Jesus saying? I don't think he's saying I'm going to punish him because he has punished, he has killed people in my church. Maybe. That would be, that's up to God. I think really the bigger thought there is, is that all of us are going to, if we follow Christ, we're going to have to suffer. That's the point. That if you're going to follow me, what does Jesus say? He tells his disciples, look, unless you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. You're going to have to suffer. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I mean, Jesus is so clear about these things. And yet we come and we come to, to church and we think, no, I want everything to be perfect. I don't want to have to suffer and I just want to believe in case, you know, just in case. That's not at all what, what Scripture commands us to do. And so where are you? I'm just asking you to self-assess where you're at. And take a step. I'll leave you with this last verse. Because I think this is for now, for those of us that have been confronted by Christ, we've been commissioned by Christ, by God, we've been equipped by God, right? Um, we've been transformed, we've, we've, we, we can see, we have spiritual eyes, we've been baptized, and so what's next? The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. All authority, this is Jesus talking, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the, what's the thrust there? What's the command to make disciples? Now, notice that all the apostles are gone. 
Timothy is gone. Titus is gone. Who's making disciples? The church, the believers. We're the disciple makers. So I'm going to ask you, who are you discipling? Who are you, who are you speaking the gospel to? Who are you training up? We're going to see how Paul trains up Timothy. Who are you discipling? I said, well, well, no one. Well, why not? Well, I'm not equipped. Yes, you are. We just already established that. You don't need to know everything. And I would ask, God has done what he can do, but what are you doing? What he, what, how are you partnering with this? All nations. And then what? What do they do? They baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's there. Like, you make disciples, and when they become a follower, they get baptized. That's the command. And then he goes on to, 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 like, to put a, an emphasis on this, teaching right, them to obey all that I've commanded you. I think he's commanded us to be baptized. And so part of the process here is now we're saying, okay, now we have to do what God has asked us to do, to live the way he's asked us to live. Not because if we fail at some point, we won't have salvation or that he won't love us. That's not the point. But if we love the Lord, we will respond in obedience. I think it's in the Gospel of John or maybe 1 John. It says, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. I mean, like, that's just understandable. So today, as we wrap up, I just would like you to be reading in 1 Timothy. I want you to understand and read with with spiritual eyes to see if you're a believer that what's happening here in the text and God is setting up his church and think about who Paul is and where he's come from and, and the magnitude of that and this young man that he's mentoring. And maybe you're a Timothy this morning and you need someone to mentor you. You need someone to disciple you. Then you go to someone that, that you think has some real good biblical knowledge, has good character, and you ask them, say, will you disciple me? Like maybe they're chicken to, to say they want to disciple you, so you go to them and you put them on the spot and say, oh, look, I need someone to teach me more about how to live holy and, and to love Jesus better. Will you do that for me? Can you imagine someone saying, no, I won't do that for you? <laughs> it takes effort. We give effort in everything else in our life. We work two jobs. We, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to college to have a career. It takes effort to obey, but love requires sacrifice. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. First of all, Lord, I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you that even when we don't obey, you've paid the penalty for that disobedience by dying for us. So, Lord, we just come to you and we just confess that we are not always obedient. I struggle, Father. Lord, but help us to move and encourage one another. Help us to, to admonish each other when, when we're off track in love. And Father, you've equipped us. Help us to realize the spiritual truths that, that we've been equipped as a believer. We've been given the Holy Spirit. You have shown us the way. You've, you've made it possible by giving us your word to see who you are, to get to know you. You've become a man so that we can see your character. We can look back and see the character that you have. So, Father, help us to do what we must do. We must partner with you. We must say yes, and we must respond to the gospel every day. Lord, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word.
thank you that even though we don't understand some of it, it's because it is so majestic that we just can't comprehend it. But help us not to get tied up in the 10% that we can't completely understand, but help us to just love and relish the 90% that you give us that is clear so that we can do your will, so that your will will be done in the lives and the hearts of people in the world and those around us. Father, thank you for our time together today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.